This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splann. Thanks for listening. Today, we have two different guests. We have Dr. Rowling as well as Pamela Case. Um, We will be discussing today pelvic therapy in physical therapy programs. So I'm going to introduce our guests and then we'll kind of jump right into the questions. So Dr. Rowling received her bachelor's science in exercise science from the University of Arizona, her master of physical therapy from Emory University, her doctor of physical therapy from A.T. Still University, and her doctor of philosophy in physical therapy from Nova Southeastern University. She is an assistant professor of physical therapy and director of the post-professional doctor of physical therapy program at ATSU. She has practiced in pelvic health PT for 15 years. She is in the Arizona representative to the APTA Academy of Pelvic Health and serves on the Education Review Committee. She is also a reviewer for multiple journals, including the Journal of Women's Health Physical Therapy and the International Urogynecology Journal. Dr. Rowling's primary teaching responsibilities include wound management and gender health care. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. And then we also have Pamela Case. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in kinesiology with an emphasis on movement science, a Doctor of Physical Therapy degree, and a Doctor of Education degree with an emphasis in education for health professions. She is an assistant professor at A.T. Still University in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program. Dr. Kays has completed professional coursework and training in the areas of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, pelvic alignment mechanics, biomechanics, neuralgia, myofascial release, visceral mobilization, pregnancy, vestibular disorders, and hippotherapy. Thanks for being here today. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So we are just going to have a conversation about how physical therapy programs have been changing throughout the recent years and what pelvic health curriculum is kind of looking like these days at their specific university as well as kind of around the United States. And we're going to talk about, you know, what labs are there? What do different clinical experiences look like for students these days? Um, Different topics that are taught in school compared to maybe 10 or 15 years ago um, and other topics like that. So to get started, um, maybe you two can talk about the pelvic health curriculum at A.T. Still University, like maybe I or listeners are incoming students that are curious about what that topic entails and what the education looks like. Um, Well, I'll start um, just from the perspective of what these first-year physical therapy students are introduced to um, before they even get to the course that's more specifically about um, includes pelvic PT topics. So I teach in um, other first-year courses like biomechanics, gait analysis, um, pathophysiology, and because 100% of my clinical work is related to pelvic PT, whenever I'm pulling uh, case examples or um, using an anecdote to explain, you know, how you might see this in the clinic, they tend to come with pelvic PT um, scenarios. And so we start introducing the students 
to that concept early on, which I think helps plant the seed and pique the curiosity and let them know that that's out there because a lot of them didn't know that. And then um, they start the questions start to come and they want to ask me more about it. And we hope then by the time in their second year they get to the more structured course that includes those pelvic PT topics, um, they're over the initial maybe shock, discomfort, um, uh, uncertainty or unfamiliarity that this exists and that this out is out there. And hopefully they're ready to actually dive in and learn more about what does this entail? What does this really look like in the clinic and how can we help patients with these conditions? So that's more of on the informal side, how they're first introduced to it. On and that I, note, could I just ask a quick question? How many students are coming in that are like, I want to do pelvic health when they like do their interviewing process or maybe on their, you know, their paperwork. Um, are there any students or have you noticed an influx of students that already have that interest coming into PT school? Maybe two in a class of 62 probably that were technicians and solid in their clinic where they came from. And so they're definitely interested or we had one um, male student who was very interested in it because of personal experience with his wife. Oh, so that great. he already knew what this was and he wanted to go into it. Very cool. And I think that interest, I'd agree with, with Dr. Rowling, maybe one to two students are aware of it and have this curiosity and, and interest to learn more. As far as those coming in saying, I already know, that's what I want to do. I think it still takes a little bit more um, prompting, discussion, encouraging, and then they decide, those who are maybe initially interested, okay, now I know that's what I want to do. But interviewing students to be, you know, first come into the program, I don't know if I've met anyone who's like, I already know it. It's already going to be pelvic PT. Yeah, I had, a, I had a clinical technician here that during her interview process at um, the Pacific University, she mentioned that that was what she wanted to get into. And after she had been accepted into the program, they actually informed her like, you know, you're the first student that's ever mentioned that on an intake, um, you know, survey or discussion. And that really did kind of help us solidify the idea of having you in this program because you had such a passion for a very unique niche. Mm -hmm. That was interesting mm -hmm. to hear. Yes. Mm. All right, Tammy, I'll let you take it away with more of the uh, direct curriculum within the pelvic health. Well, when they get into our gender healthcare course, it's the very last class of the last block before they go on clinicals. And before they get to our class, a lot of the folks have been exposed. Last year, we opened a pro bono clinic. And so we are... We, are the, we were the only one, there might be one other program starting on the East Coast, but we actually have a full pelvic health program for folks who do not have insurance or they're underinsured. So that has been wonderful for students to be exposed actually in the clinical setting, watching Dr. Kays and I treating patients. So they've kind of seen us in practice. And then when they get into the gender healthcare course, we teach everything. Our, we start off with dysmenorrhea, which is you know, the medical term for painful periods. We talk about testicular health. We go into the pelvic floor dysfunctions like urinary incontinence, pelvic pain, men who have prostate problems. Um, we go into pregnancy and, and what all entails with antepartum, postpartum. We talk about breast cancer, lymphedema, menopause, um, cardiovascular and women's health. We talk about intimate partner violence so they know how to um, document and be comfortable with, with with men and women who've been experienced, you know, violence at home. So they get a whole array of topics that last class before they go off in their clinical setting. 
That's great. And, you know, from what I recall from our course topics, it seems like it has really morphed from when I was in school and then learning from you in this, in this course. Um, talk to me a little bit about how the curriculum has changed over time and, and what have been the driving factors to that change. Great. So in the beginning, when I first started teaching this class in 2007, it was um, getting our anatomist to be comfortable teaching pelvic health with the cadavers. Before it was kind of, well, that's a pelvis, now let's move on. And um, to get just the anatomy professors to be comfortable teaching the content was the first change I recall seeing. Um, since that time, we've gotten a lot more into um, like diastasis rectus abdominis has been a huge issue. A lot of the psychosocial aspects of pelvic health. And now looking at the future, the big push has been into transgender health. How can we be competent providers for the transgender community as well as um, pediatric pelvic floor dysfunction? So a lot of people don't realize, but children also have a pelvis and pelvic floor. And so how can we make our, or help our pelvic floor, our, our pediatric physical therapist more comfortable in addressing that and referring on. Definitely. I think I had a really good, you know, framework in school, but like you're saying, I think a lot of the research and things like that didn't come forth until after I had graduated. And, you know, I think only in the last year have there been continuing education courses on transgender health um, and getting the women's clinical specialty, you, you kind of have to dive into the literature more than doing different like continuing education courses. So that helped me feel very well-rounded in that ability. Um, and so I know it, there are definitely niches within the niche of pelvic floor physical therapy. And in, in our state, in our area, I believe our clinic is the only one that treats um, transgender as well as a pelvic for pediatrics, um, just because it does take extra training and knowledge and um, it is amazing what surgery has done for the transgender population, and I am so happy to hear that that has become a part of the curriculum because I did feel very self-taught and did shadowing with a gynecologist in obstetrics that specialized in transgender, and that's how I felt like I got that really strong understanding of the anatomy. Um, so I'm so happy to hear that that is a part of the curriculum now. That's so exciting, and I know some of my patients, when I tell them that, will be so excited because they're such an underserved population as well as the pediatrics. I think a lot of those parents don't know where to turn. They've been to the, they've been to the, um, urology within whatever their children's hospital is. They've been to their pediatrician and they're kind of just going back and forth. And then they finally end up in our office and I'm just dying and wishing that they came here years and years ahead of time. And so I feel like getting this curriculum out and especially at AT Still University where it is a health science area and um, at least from when I was there, there were different courses with the DOs and with the PAs. So we kind of understood what we did together and how we worked together and being able to understand when to refer out. And, you know, when those questions aren't being answered and we're kind of at that dead end, who, who do we refer and, and when? And so knowing that that's in the curriculum and being shared amongst the different professions is so great to hear. Yeah, our, we, uh, Dr. Kays and I, we recently did a, uh, a research study. We did a survey of all licensed Arizona physical therapists and asking them, like, how often do you screen for urinary incontinence? Do you refer out and so forth? And 
overwhelmingly the pelvic floor PTs in Arizona were like, well, this doesn't even pertain to me. The pediatric. And, yeah, pediatric. Pediatric PTs. Floor. Yeah, okay. pediatric PTs. And right. so that's our big thing now is we want to make sure that the graduates of our program, if they're going to go into pediatric specialty, they need to know that this is, a, a, you know, can be a concern for your patients and how do you refer them out? Perfect. Now diving a little bit more into the curriculum, talk to me a little bit what the labs are like for the pelvic health. Are there labs? Um, from like the anatomy portion all the way to more pelvic specific labs. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, um, for some maybe obvious reasons, we don't get to have as many labs and hands-on training and learning in this area because it is a more sensitive um, area. And maybe with your peers, your fellow students, you know, and with instructors, colleagues, it's not the type of setting where we can um, have the consent and liability and things associated with that. However, we do have a lab that focuses on diastasis rectus abdominis within our gender um, course here at, in the curriculum. Um, also, as Dr. Rowling mentioned, with anatomy, they have anatomy labs and they do spend more time focusing on the pelvic, the you know pelvic musculature and vasculature and um, organs ranging from reproductive to GI and neurogenital and um, obviously, you know, all the musculoskeletal things as well. So getting more understanding and knowledge with the anatomy. And then we really encourage our students to, if they're interested and they're, they want to learn more and pursue this, to actually take the level one course, whether that be through the APTA or Herman Wallace, to get that hands-on training where it's in a setting that's specifically designed for that. And um, often in the recent years, things might be different now with our current um, situation in the nation and COVID-19, but in recent years, we've had a pretty good um, attendance from students at locally held in Arizona, like Herman Wallace Level 1 course, where they students who are interested go and actually get that continuing education level training um, to maybe get their foot in the door for that. And if they do do the training, then they get to actually work, do internal examinations on the patients in the pro bono clinic. Yes. So that's been exciting for them to do that. Um, and so we've had two students so far this year who've gone through the training and have been able to get that hands on in their clinic. So that's the missing piece is that pro bono clinic. Then they get to see it in the clinic um, for the things that it's appropriate for them to do some hands-on, but then obviously the supervising clinician or faculty member will do the things that's not appropriate for them, the students to do, but they can still observe and learn from um, that. That's great. I know we've been expanding within our company on pelvic um, specialists, and it's been great to see the amount of new grads coming out with the level one coursework and eager to get into two and three, um, depending which route they're going, either the APTA or the Herman and Wallace. So that's been great to see. And it, it does make sense why, you know, the internal labs are not a part of the PT school, especially because you don't want to mandate every student that has to do it, um, which is definitely um, a, a factor that might be limiting for sure. Um, now, do you guys do a lab on biofeedback as well? We do do that. Um, we have um, usually a couple of students volunteer and they can hook because, you know, the sensors go in a very sensitive place. So they'll, um, we have them put them on themselves in the bathroom. And then when they come back in the classroom, they're fully dressed and we're able to put it on the big screen in front of the class, them on biofeedback. Um, so that's been fun. And then in the course, the pro bono clinic, they're getting to see it with real life patients as well. 
Yes. I thought that was like such a fun lab. (laughs) It was so fun to see how strong they were or weak or doing the flicks versus the endurance and really seeing on the big screen and really watching their face trying to do it so well. (laughs) And something Dr. Rowling is good at is, you know, based on who volunteers, but kind of picking out, um, you know, I bet that person has a weak pelvic floor. Someone who might you know, on the outward appearance, look very strong, maybe a, you know, muscular person, very athletic, very fit. Those people tend to be, you know, obviously with exceptions, but they tend to be those that don't have the good um, pelvic floor muscle strength because they put so much attention into their big external mover muscles that they never, you know, paid much attention to how strong their pelvic floor were. So, um, muscles were, so it, it's a good example and demonstration, um, for the class to see. That's great. I know I got super excited after, uh, I think it was a couple years ago, and they came out with some case studies on diastasis with kinesio taping. And, um, you know, I think at CSM, when we were in Washington, D.C., they went over how to do different electrical stimulation to the rectus abdominis as well. So it's been great to kind of be able to create more of a protocol for those diastasis patients, because it definitely seems like it's all the rage right now, for sure. Yeah. So kind of moving along for each of you individually, I'd like to know what is your favorite topic in the curriculum that you enjoy teaching and why? Well, for me, the, I like the very first day of class. We go over the dysmenorrhea and testicular health. And so it's fun because it pertains directly to, you know, the, the student who's in their mid-20s. And um, it really kind of opens their eyes and they're hearing, you know, their teacher talk about testicles and it's like getting over the little giggles and, and so forth and starting to feel comfortable with that material. So I always find that class a lot of fun because students really engage with that. Um, also towards the end of the class, we talk or end of the the, the the semester we talk about disability and sexuality and that's been a lot of fun for me just to see the students start it's like all the light bulbs have gone off and now they feel comfortable talking about sex and sexuality and how to approach a patient with those topics so those are the ones I I personally enjoy great and Pam Um, for me I mean it's so hard to choose a favorite because we of course love all these different aspects of what we do but um, the thing that I feel the most passionate about is talking about pelvic pain. Um, I feel like this population, um, particularly women with pelvic pain, but men also with pelvic pain, um, they have a different experience as they're navigating healthcare than other, you know, pelvic other pelvic conditions. So, um, on average, from the onset of pelvic pain symptoms to the time these people get diagnosed, it's it's over 10 years on average in the U.S. It takes 10 years for them seeking care, seeking care to finally arrive at a diagnosis. And until they have a diagnosis, they don't understand what's happening to their body, what's going on, what's wrong. They don't know what to do to help it if they don't know what's causing it. Um, So it's kind of a scary... um, disheartening um, thing for people to, to experience that and not have any answers um, for that long. Um, it is a more complex thing to, to work on and treat, and there are psychosocial factors that go into that, but I really like advocate, advocating and learning more um, when it comes to that topic to try to help that population um, get the answers and treatment they need sooner. That population is the reason that I started this podcast. 
I felt the same way. I felt like they were very underserved, under-recognized, pushed as it was all, like some patients have been told it was all in their head. All um, the time. And, and it's just, it's, it is disheartening that that is the case. And so that was my driving factor in creating this podcast to really get the information out to the general public. So maybe their friend could tell them about it or um, rather than going to a physician, maybe more word of mouth and, and talking about it. You know, our America as a whole is very sensitive in conversations in regards to sexuality compared to other places in the world like Europe or South America where people might be more open in sharing um, difficulties or passions. And so because of that, I feel like we're at such a disadvantage. And so I really just wanted to get the conversations going to hopefully have people gain access to healthcare and the answers much, much sooner than it might take going the traditional healthcare route. Right. Um, so kind of going that direction, it's, it's obviously pretty difficult, I would think, finding clinical internships in, in pelvic health. Have you ran into that problem or how is that process done at AT still to try and help these students that have the Herman Wallace Level 1 get into a clinical internship? We have amazing directors of clinical education, and they they really do wonderful work getting our students placed. So we pretty much get it placed, but their big challenge is a lot of pelvic health providers are cash-based practices. And so if you have a PT who's not taking insurance and the patient's paying $150 cash out of pocket, you can't then turn around and say, well, here's a student to work with you. So that's I think that's a, a big challenge is finding a, a, a good pelvic health PT who's a good teacher who does not have a cash-based practice and is willing to take on a student. Um, so I know it's a challenge, but our, our directors of clinical ed have done a great job making sure our students get placed. The other aspect of that is, I mean, yes, the, the pelvic PTs that exist in the areas um, oftentimes are cash-based, but it's not a big pool to choose from, you know, even with that because pelvic PT is an underserved, underrepresented um, area of PT. There's always wait lists for people trying to get in for pelvic PT and there's just not enough of these physical therapists to treat those conditions. So um, some of the clinical sites will actually require the level one um, course for students to show that A, they're serious about this. It's not just a, oh, we'll see, I'm just curious. I just, it, they're serious about you know learning more about this and that they can actually have a meaningful rotation in, in clinical um, experience where they can actually do some of the assessment techniques and be more involved versus, oh, I haven't had any of that training. I guess all I can do is kind of observe and watch and, and learn that way. So um, because of some of those factors, it is uh, more challenging to find pelvic clinical rotation um, spots for students. But like Dr. Rowling said, our clinical um, education directors have been really good at, at getting um, spots for the students who are serious about it. Send them our way. We are not a cash-based clinic. We have four different clinics in the Salt Lake region that have pelvic therapists. So hopefully we're on your guys' list. We are all about nurturing. And I have always found teaching to be so rewarding um, and really seeing kind of that aha moment when you kind of see the switch over from interest to passion happen. Um, so definitely send them our way. We love students for sure. We will definitely tell them, our doctors. <laughs> good, good. Um, so I know when I was in school, it seemed like most of our curriculum in the pelvic health was female related. Um, it did not really have much male. It didn't have much child 
pelvic floor. At what point did that curriculum kind of change and start adding some of these more sensitive and less served populations? Um, the, the males, I've been, we've been incorporating it quite a bit for the last couple of years. I don't remember exactly when. As far as children, we're going to get a lot more into it actually this coming year. And same with the transgenders. And those are typically now the big new things that are coming out to push. We want to be ahead of that. So the, the children and the transgender will be, will be taught this coming spring of 2021. Great. And I think to kind of give some context there, um, to even get to the topic of pelvic conditions at all. I mean, I think it's pretty standard in a lot of curriculums to have like a two-part lecture, like an hour and a half on a Monday and an hour and a half on a Wednesday, for example. And they try to get everything taught about what students might need to know in pelvic within like a three-hour time frame. Our program is a little more unique in that we have a whole 10-week course that's dedicated just for that. Um, and so I think, you know, pregnancy, antepartum, postpartum, and women's pelvic issues is kind of like, it was a, a big push just to get the initial information out there. Um, now that this field does have momentum, it's growing and there's more you know, growth as far as more people being interested in going into pelvic PT and different things. I think now it, we see that it's, it makes sense to start layering in those other things, the pediatric, the transgender, um, whereas before we were just like happy to get a spot to talk about these women's pelvic issues. Um, so yeah, it is, it's great, gaining momentum. We're serving more populations, more PTs are becoming available so that more of these populations can be served. So it definitely makes sense at, that the curriculum evolves to cover all those different bases. And I think also a challenge for other programs is, you know, the pelvic PTs are very, you know, few of us and a lot of pelvic floor PTs only treat females. So it's hard to find someone who can also teach and teach the male aspect because they're not treating males. It's kind of hard to teach the males. So I think that's also a challenge for other programs as well. Same with pediatric and, and transgender and yep. Right, right. So when you have a student that is wanting to get their level one course, how do you help guide them towards APTA versus Herman and Wallace? Is that kind of a discussion? Because they are quite different, right? The APTA is helping to train more towards getting the WCS, whereas Herman and Wallace has their PRPC. And so they're definitely very different in regards to um, the track, so to speak. So do you help with that in mentoring or do they kind of just choose based on availability and location? It's more availability and location. And Herman and Wallace has um, a long tradition of coming to Arizona to teach their class. So it's been a lot easier for our students. Um, years that they are not here in Arizona, we actually have a therapist up in Flagstaff who she found both both pelvic floor level ones, whether it be through APTA or Herman and Wallace, not sufficient for what she wanted her students to come with because she says it's strictly vaginal examination on females with incontinence. And so when a student would come to her, they didn't know much about, you know, uh, the, the GI and colorectal issues or male issues. And so she kind of created her own course to try to capture, it's a st still three-day course, you still get eight lab times to do vaginal examinations, but encompass more topics. And so we have also, students have gone to her course when the pelvic floor level one wasn't here to, to be able to get that internal examination training. Now, the problem they've had with that is some facilities don't take that. Even though they're still getting the same number of internal lab experiences, they still say you have to have one of the two big ones. Yeah. Got it. 
The other thing to consider is, um, you know, before the WCS, APTA has the CAP certification, Certificate of Achievement in Pelvic Physical Therapy, and um, Herman Wallace has their PRPC. And so if you want to get your CAP certification, APTA will only acknowledge courses you've taken through the APTA. Mm -hmm. You can't have taken your level one with Herman Wallace and your level two with APTA. You can't bounce back and forth and still get that CAP certification. If you want to get your CAP certification, you completed a course with Herman Wallace, for example, they would want you to go back and take it with them. Um, whereas Herman Wallace will acknowledge Herman Wallace courses or APTA courses towards, um, you know, getting the PRPC. I think that's really good to know. And I think, you know, like you're saying, it's, it is really based on availability. I think that's what made me choose which level one to go with. And then after I did my level one, was when I decided I wanted to go more the WCS route um, and just kind of started doing all the self-guided study after that point. Um, but I know it's it's pretty interesting because if you go the PRPC route with Herman Wallace right now, then you're really kind of stuck in like the male-female zone more. Like the transgender and the and the pediatrics are are very low and pregnancy um, team seems to be very very low in that curriculum. They do of course have extra courses. It's just not part of their um, four stage uh, coursework to get that PRPC. And so when I'm always talking to students, I kind of try and educate them on that one. I think it really depends on where you're at and what you're trying to treat. Because I know in our clinic we see a wide variety of and a big portion of that is antepartum and postpartum population. And so being able to have a strong background in that with, you know, the WCS having a lot of questions in their exams based on that type of curriculum. So I think it also kind of depends on where and what you want to serve as well to choose which route is best for you. Right. That's great. All right, Pam, let's start with you. If nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this discussion? Um, I want them to know that there is pelvic physical therapy out there. And if you're not sure what that would entail, and if it's right for something you might be experiencing or someone you know, start asking. Try to you know look up where a pelvic physical therapist might be in the area. Um, don't always expect your primary care or even OBGYN or urologist to know exactly where and what pelvic therapy is offered. Um, and beyond that, I just, something that I'm passionate about is are all the life things that go along with these conditions. When you have pelvic pain, it can affect your, your relationship, your, you know, um, ability to have more physical intimacy with your partner. It might affect um, incontinence. Pelvic pain might affect your sense of self. You're feeling in, insecure and not confident to go out in the house or wear certain clothes or things like that based on what problem you might be experiencing. So pelvic therapists are sensitive to that and are aware of that and want to help you work through those problems. And um, I can speak for myself and I think Dr. Rowling as well. We're comfortable with those uncomfortable topics. We're comfortable um, approaching those issues with you. So, and I think most pelvic PTs are. So if you need it and you, th or you think you need it, um, seek it out. And I think that it could help you. All right, Dr. Rowling, same question for you. What do you hope listeners take away from this discussion? Well, Pam, Pam said it. I mean, just make sure you're getting out there, getting, getting the care that you need, pelvic floor PT. That, that's, even if your doctor doesn't suggest it, they might not know about it. It's definitely a route to, to, um, to pursue. The other thing, in case we have 
providers out there listening is just trying to think outside the box to elevate our level of care. We had um, a hospital here, I was so thrilled, I just heard about this this month, where the acute care therapists are being trained by the pelvic floor PTs on how to provide first level education to postpartum women who just had a baby and if they've had a third or fourth degree tear or they've had a C-section, they have the knowledge to give that first level education and let those women know that there is pelvic floor health PT for them if they need it. And so that's my whole thing is how can we think outside the box to share with everyone that, that we are out there to help them. Great. I know for myself, we're trying to create, similar to how they have a postpartum depression survey, um, I'm trying to create a postpartum pelvic um, dysfunction survey that's five questions to identify if they have incontinence, pain, um, pelvic pain, back pain, diastasis, urgency, um, so that, you know, when they're getting that postpartum screen, it's not just about depression, but it's also about their body because sometimes they don't think to ask the questions and the OBs don't think to ask the questions either. And so sometimes it can be just an easy yes or no survey that gets created that if they answer yes, great, pelvic PT is the way to go. Here's, here's a couple options for you in the area. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Yeah. Good luck to you on that. That'd be yeah. wonderful. Yeah. I'll send it your way when we kind of finalize it. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. If you'd like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Tammy and Pam for coming on the show today. And if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Mine would be through my email, which is T-R-O-E-H-L-I-N-G at A-T-S-U dot E-D-U. Mine would also be email. So um, Pamela Kays, P-A-M-E-L-A-K-A-Y-S at A-T-S-U dot E-D-U. Great. And thank you again for listening. Please tune in next for next month's episode. And also remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.